Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Well, I'm so glad that you joined us today, whether you're here or online. I appreciate you being a part of our church. Uh, my name's Trevor. If you're new here, I'm the pastor here at the church, and I'm thankful that we can open God's Word together. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to John's Gospel, chapter 11. For us as a church, our mission really is to experience renewed life in Jesus. And we think that happens as He renews our affections, giving us a whole new purpose in life that's eternal. And it's something then that we fulfill alongside a whole new community, that we're included now in a new family. And so I'm so thankful that you would join us as a family. Uh, typically, our, the third Sunday of the month is when we'd have a partner highlight uh, to give an update about some of our partnerships in different parts of the world. However, we're going to hold that till next week because we'll actually have someone here in person to give you an update um, from Ukraine. So I'm looking forward to that. John chapter 11. And I'll invite our reader this morning. And I'll forewarn you, we're going to read a big chunk of scripture on the front end. So stick with us and follow along. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mar Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go, that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. 
And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is asking for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Thank you. There's an old French poet who said that neither the sun nor death can be looked at with a steady eye. But for us, our topic that this story brings to the surface is the topic of death, and it's the thing that we need to look at together. I mean, my friends, we all know that, that death is not an if, it's just a when for all of us. And yet somehow, whenever death happens or occurs, when it hits close to home, we always seem shocked and surprised. And I think a part of that is probably because we try to live our life hiding ourselves from the reality of death. We don't like thinking about it. We'd rather act like it's not real. I think the other reason, though, that it shocks and surprises us so much of the time is because our first thought when it hits is that things shouldn't be this way, that this isn't right, that this isn't fair. You see, our own mind and heart knows that we were made for something different than this, that death is not natural for us. It's so unnatural that it's a gut punch every time it comes knocking at the door. You see, the story that we find today involves some of Jesus' closest friends who have not just now needed to grapple with the possibility of death, we're finding his friends are having to endure the depth of sorrow that only the reality of death can bring to us. 
We're really at the tail end of our series, remember, working through John's gospel. The first half of it presents seven different signs that we've been walking through and talking about. Remember that John doesn't use the word miracle when talking about these miraculous, wonderful things Jesus does. He calls them instead signs because they are meant to not just wow and amaze us, but to point our attention to a truth and reality outside of themselves. In the end, at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, he tells us why he recorded them. He said, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing, you might have life in his name. It's why we're calling our little series, That You'd Believe, or That You May Believe, because that's why we're looking at these things, because I believe these things are meant to grow our image and picture, our understanding of Jesus, and they're meant to exist in our lives as catalysts for greater faith. Remember, because the signs were not recorded merely to impress you, they're recorded to convince you that Jesus is, in fact, trustworthy. Now, as we've walked through this series, we started, you remember, with Jesus at a wedding feast in chapter 2, turning water to wine. But have you noticed how they've escalated? What started with something as simple as water in a stone pot now crescendos and climaxes with a dead body inside a stone tomb. The first sign brought, brought the beauty of red wine filling that stone vessel. This final one involves the miraculous production of blood that begins to pump through a man's ice-cold, rigid, decomposing body, and it all of a sudden breathes life back into him and makes his system function after having been in the grave for four days. It's pretty wild how these things have climactically built, and this is the climax of the seven signs. It points us to a greater sign still that comes at the end of the book, where Jesus proves that he doesn't just have power to give life and bring resurrection, but that he himself is that power, because when he's dead, he comes back to life at the end of the book. But hey, in this story, there's four things I want to talk about, four things I think worth observing about Jesus in the story. The first is Jesus's delay. The second is Jesus' sorrow. The third is Jesus' anger. And the final thing is Jesus' power. So let's start with the first thing, Jesus' delay. Because the story is probably familiar for many of us, but the delay of Jesus, if you noticed it, probably doesn't sit well with any of us. You see, the story begins with what we could classify as a prayer. It's found in verse 3, where they send word to Jesus, Lord, our brother whom you love is sick. I love that that's the way that they talk to Jesus. That's the way that they address him. The one that you love is sick. For years, Jesus has been healing sick people, people who are crippled and blind, people with different ailments and illnesses of all sorts of kinds came to him and Jesus touched and healed him, healed them over and over again. In fact, we've even seen a story where Jesus, with just a spoken word earlier in John's gospel, didn't even need to go to them but just spoke the word and instantly they were healed. Without a doubt, it would be easy for Jesus to come and to do this for the one that he loved for his dear friend Lazarus. But it's not what you find Jesus doing at all. Adding to our confusion is that it actually affirms Jesus' love for him and then tells him or tells us, the reader, that he delays in going to him. In other words, they appeal to the love of Jesus for him as the motivation for why Jesus should come and do something but the decision of Jesus to, de to delay here is described for us as being because he loved him. Because he loved him, he delayed. Look in your Bible if you didn't notice it before. Look in verse 4. 
When Jesus heard that, he said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Because he loved him, he stayed put. That's a wild thing, like a a strange detail in the story. Jesus delayed to go to them. It says, because he loved them. I mean, picture the scene. Jesus delays several days, and during that time, Lazarus finally succumbs to whatever illness he's dealing with, and he dies, and Jesus knows that he's dead. In verse 14, he states it plainly. Bodies that, that that are dead, especially in an era, an age without refrigeration, they were quickly prepared for burial because they would begin to rot and decompose and spread disease overnight. It was so quick, that process. So often the same day that someone would die, a body would be prepared for burial, and then they'd be put into a tomb. Now for us in a modern setting like we live in, we hide ourselves from death rather well. When someone dies, typically a sheet is put over top of them, and there's a professional service that will come and collect them. But it's not so in this day and age that we're talking about here, where Mary and Martha would have watched their brother breathe his last and had no one to call. One of them probably would have left his side and gone into the marketplace to get the cloth that they needed and the spices that they wanted. They'd soak the cloth in spices. They'd wipe their brother's body down. They themselves, maybe with the help of a few friends, would then dress his body, preparing it to be put in a tomb. Can you imagine the heartache you're feeling? You don't even have time to process before you're beginning the process of wrapping and preparing your own brother's body for a grave that he will be carried to in just a couple of hours. You see, a body would be placed inside a tomb and left there for a period of time until it had completely rot and decayed, decomposed, and then the box or a box would be brought, a stone box, and the cave would be opened, and you'd take the bones that remained there and put it in a much smaller tomb, a little tiny ossuary, a bone box, and that would be their final resting place. But in this moment, Jesus will arrive before the body will get there. There's three days of mourning that have already taken place with people arriving at the tomb. You you probably have heard this before, but there were in this culture professional mourners that you would pay to come and make a big scene because again, there was no time to delay. You had to instantly start the process of getting that body ready to go in a grave lest it spread illness or disease. And so hiring these professional mourners, getting them to come in and weep and mourn loudly, which it actually tips its cap to in verse 19, talking about Mary and Martha and the women who were already gathered there to mourn, you do that so then the whole community realized what had happened. So it wouldn't go past them or it wouldn't happen unnoticed. Jesus, though, finally arrives to, to find the people that he loves have cried themselves empty. There's three times in the Gospels where Jesus will raise someone from the dead. There's the son of a widow, there's the daughter of Jairus, and then there's the brother, his name is Lazarus, whom he loved. He he raised one before the funeral procession, he raised one right in the middle of the funeral procession, and then this one he will raise three days after the funeral procession. He raised one who is dead for maybe a half an hour, he raised another who had been dead for half a day, and he now raises Lazarus, who's been dead for half a week. And in my life, and maybe in yours too, you've had moments where it wasn't until after you felt as though you had cried out all of your tears that God then showed up and began his healing work in your heart and in your life. 
Well, remember their story. It began with their prayer. They sent word to Jesus. And my tendency is that I question his love when he delays. When he doesn't answer instantaneously, I begin to question, am I not one that you truly love? It says here that he delayed because of his love for them. He was delaying so that they could see God's power at work in the story. There's an old archbishop of Dublin in the 1800s. His name was Richard Trench, and he said it this way. He says, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. Yes, the way that God works, his timing, his delays, they're an absolute mystery to me almost all the time. But it should not be seen. I should not take it as an indication. I should not take his delays as an indication that he is disinterested in me. Remember, please, that prayer is not twisting his arm. It's opening a door to God. You see, it's been wisely said that God's delays are not delays of inactivity, but of preparation. I may be praying and even losing heart because I'm not seeing an instant impact and response to my prayers, but that doesn't mean that God isn't moving and working or doesn't have a reason for doing things in his timeline rather than in my own. But my tendency is that I judge the love of God for me based upon my circumstances. And here Jesus is affirming the one that I love, I'm going to delay in responding to. The disciples, they seem to do the same thing that I do, judge the love of God based on their circumstances. You see it when they're on the boat and it's in a storm and they're sinking and they cry out and say, Jesus, do you even care that we're perishing? They ask the same kinds of questions that I ask. What you find here in Mary and Martha, it seems so very different when the prospect of their worst fear being realized, their loved ones succumbing to this life-threatening illness, their prayer was, Jesus, the one that you love, is sick. So different than the disciples saying, do you even care? Because look at our circumstances. They're saying, we're confident that you care despite the circumstance. Listen, if you want to find comfort or peace in prayer, you can't make the mistake of approaching Jesus on the grounds of your loveliness or your worthiness or your goodness. Oh, the one who is deserving of your love, Jesus, me, the one who's worked hard to earn and deserve it. I need your help now. No, no, you must instead approach him based on his gracious love for you and a confidence in that love that's unshaken even when circumstances make you question it. You will not be able to do that to experience the comfort and peace that's found in prayer even if you judge or ever if you judge his love based upon your circumstances. It needs to be the opposite, that we judge our circumstances based upon his love for us. His demonstrated, proven love for us that he demonstrated and proved on a cross for us. It's a brief, I'm I'm believing it's probably a a loose quotation of someone much smarter than me that I've heard just say it over the years or read somewhere, but, but it's a great reminder that we do not judge his love based upon our circumstances. We are meant to judge our circumstances based upon his great and gracious proven love for us. I don't judge his love for me based on my circumstances. I view my circumstances through Jesus' love for me. I live, I ought to live under the shadow and reality of the cross that he embraced for me. And so when I can't see his hand, I'm meant to trust his heart. Take heart, my friend, if you're baffled by his delay in your life. If your circumstances overwhelm you and you're crying out to him saying, the one that you love is hurting and where are you? It may be 
that his delay is here because he loves you as it was for them. So notice first Jesus' delay, but then notice his sorrow. Yes, he delayed, but it didn't mean his heart was detached from the situation. Look at his sorrow, because once Jesus arrives, it feels too late. All hope has been lost. But the one that the prophets foretold would be our wonderful counselor, knows how to support and care for each one of his children in every moment and circumstance. And this is a bleak one. This is a hard one that Jesus navigates so beautifully. You probably noticed it, that the two sisters make the same exact comment to Jesus. And yet Jesus' response to them really couldn't have been any more different than it was. With Martha, he speaks. With Mary, he weeps. With Martha, he expresses confidence and boldness. With Mary, he utters not a word. They both said the same thing. Lord, if you were here, if only you were here, he wouldn't have died. But with Martha, he would claim to be deity and then minister truth in that moment. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? But with Mary, he will demonstrate his humanity and minister through his simple presence. With Martha, it's not merely that he's saying, I have some of God's power. It's that he claimed, I am present with God's power because I am God. I am the resurrection and the life. But with Mary, it's not just that he shows some compassion. It is he is the bodily expression of heaven's compassion for humanity when it records in your Bible in verse 35 that Jesus sits with her and weeps with her. You know, for me, my humanity begins to show really quickly in hard situations like this, where you show up and people are just traumatized by a tragic event, where there's words that can't really do justice to even express the kind of anguish that they carry. And so words fail someone like me in that position to try to speak life or wisdom. It's difficult to navigate those things. I mean, how could any of us really know how to, to speak into each moment like this or how to respond to each individual who's grieving because they do need a different response? But Jesus isn't like us. See, Martha needed to be lifted up with hope in the midst of her sorrow to re be reminded that, yes, we sorrow, but not as a world void of hope sorrows. We have a hope in Jesus and an everlasting life. While her sister Mary, he met her in her sorrow and sits full of compassion with her in that sorrow. What you see here is God among us proving himself to be our wonderful counselor. It's beautiful. Verse 35, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible is also one of the most profound. Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way. He said, a Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. You know, again and again in the scripture, it promises, Old Testament and New, that God is with you. But for me, when I'm hurting, I don't know what that always means. I question, what, what value does that have? I almost feel as if it's, it's like if you were in a hospital stay and you're really suffering and a friend can't get to you. They don't show up in person, but they send a note and flowers or a note in a balloon and and sometimes when I think, what am I supposed to picture, God, that you're with me? I, I picture that. It's like, it's like a balloon in a room. Or, or is it like a volleyball that you, you draw a face on because you're all alone in your sorrow and, and you call it Wilson. And now you've got a compadre, a companion with you. Sometimes we sell God short that that's how we think of him. Well, it's almost like by proxy, he sends a little comfort. But he's not really here is how we feel. We feel so isolated when we're sorrowful. But he's not just there in those moments of fear and suffer, suffering and disappointment. 
When it says that God is with you, it's communicating, your Bible's telling you that he deeply cares in those moments. It's Isaiah 63 verse 9 that says, in all their suffering, he also suffered. It's Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 that says that Jesus, our high priest, he sympathizes with our every weakness. It literally is translated, he suffers with us. You see, I'm so comforted by the fact that Jesus feels what I feel, that he cares, that Jesus wept. And when he wept, he did not weep for Lazarus because he just said that he would raise him. When he wept, he did not weep for himself over his own sorrow that he's going to miss his friend because he knows in just a moment he'll be face to face with him again. No, he wept in this moment. He was moved with emotion because those that he loved were hurting and broken. And their sorrow overcame him. You see, seeing their sorrow, it moved him. Feeling their sorrow equips and enables him, though. You see, think this through. Scripture takes it a step further than just saying that we should be comforted by the fact that God understands or that he cares It tells me that God understands through experience, and now because of that, he is able to aid those who suffer. He's able to help me. You see, because God became a man, and I see it in this moment, I can have confidence that he understands me and that he's able to sympathize with my weakness. Again, quoting that great Spurgeon line, that a Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. You see, if you've ever felt frustrated or, or questioned God's connection to your feelings and, and your, your pressure and your pain that you endure, then hear me say our perception of God, of how he thinks and what he feels, it's meant to dramatically shift and change when we see Jesus suffer from sorrow. You see, Jesus' humanity and the suffering he will later endure at the end of the book on the cross takes the God who he needed to be big enough to measure the universe in the span of his hand, Isaiah said. It makes him small enough to come up beside us in our suffering and sorrow and put an arm around our shoulder and gently whisper to us that I understand. You see, Jesus truly was a man of many sorrows, well acquainted with grief as the prophets foretold him to be. And you're seeing it here as he's weeping shoulder to shoulder with his friends. Oh, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it really is one of the most profound And it's so powerful, it's so profound, because God in the flesh is weeping. The flesh that concealed the glory and power of Almighty God is in this moment trembling and stained with sorrow's tears. And no, he didn't weep for himself, and no, he didn't weep for Lazarus. He wept because those that he loved were overwhelmed by grief and hurt and loss, and it broke his heart in that moment. He was weeping because of what sin had done to this man. He knew that the man was created to be in perfect fellowship with God, but sin brought death and separation between God and man and destruction to this earth and sorrow with it. Right now, Jesus is grieving more than just, I think, a singular loss. I think it's God grieving humanity's loss, what was lost at the fall in the Garden of Eden. Oh, Scripture tells us that God is near the brokenhearted that he is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. You see, we hurt, we suffer, we weep, we mourn, knowing with confidence that God stands with us and cares for us. But even more so, we know that God has done something for us to remedy the suffering that we endure. You see, I'm not just comforted that God cares. Please hear me. You are meant to be comforted because God came. 
He didn't just care from a distant place in heaven and send flowers or a balloon. No, he came. And when I question his care or his goodness or his justice, I can say this isn't right, it isn't fair. I can be frustrated and angry and say, God, why didn't you fill in the blank? Heal or intervene or provide or help. And God does not provide the answer to the intellectual quandary that you find yourself in in those moments. Instead, he provides the resolution to the problem. Because he did not give an answer from heaven, no, he gave himself. God came to suffer and die to rid the world of sin, sickness, and death once and for all. He sent his son into the world. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In a book I recently read entitled Spurgeon's Sorrows that highlighted Charles Spurgeon's uh, own lifelong battle with depression and anxiety, author Zach Eswine, he writes, saying this, he says, perhaps nothing in life reminds us that we are not God and that this earth is not heaven like an indescribable distress that sometimes defies cause and has no immediate cure or no cure at all. As Spurgeon, as he reflected on his own agony and suffering, he said this, he said, the sympathy of Jesus is the next most precious thing to his sacrifice. My friends, to know that the God to whom we cry out has himself suffered as we do, to know that he too has wept over, been overcome by sorrow, it causes us to recognize that we're not alone in our suffering and that God is not cruel or detached from its sorrows. Let me give you just a practical word of encouragement here that I think is worth you considering before we move on. And that's quoting again from Eswine's book, Spurgeon Starros. This is what Spurgeon said. He said, the friend who quotes verses feels like one who stands and shouts at the migraine. When someone's suffering, the friend who comes quoting verses feels like one who stands and shouts at the migraine. See, I think a good rule of thumb when you love someone who's suffering and you want to help them may be to talk more to God about them than to talk to them about God. I think that what you do is you pray for them, you comfort them, you weep with them, and yes, you speak the truth to them, but I think you do that after praying with them, comforting them, and weeping with them. We don't need to short-circuit the process. Jesus' delay is the first thing I think worth noticing. Jesus' sorrow, he wept with them, but then Jesus' anger. Jesus' anger. Quoting from Tim Keller on this passage, he said, The weeping of Jesus tells us who Jesus is, but the rage of Jesus tells us what he came to do. But where's Jesus' anger? Where's the rage in the story? Because as you first read through it, you don't really catch it, do you? You actually find it, though, his anger. You find it first in verse 33 and then in verse 38. In verse 33, he says, Therefore, the Bible says, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And then in verse 38, then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone had been laid against it. The term that's used there means to snort in anger. It's used to describe an animal in the Greek language, typically a horse that would snort in angry disapproval, that would snort and snarl and turn its head and its body away. It's such a startling detail in the story, the use of this word, that Bible translators have seemed to shy away from it almost completely. 
There's a Greek linguist who's famous, his name is Dr. Weiss, who weighs in on our discussion when he gives his own translation of this word in the text. He says that it should better read this way. Then Jesus, when he saw her weeping audibly, and the Jews who had come with her weeping audibly also, Jesus was moved with indignation in his spirit and deeply troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? And in verse 38, Dr. Weiss says, Jesus again moved with indignation in himself, came to the tomb. It's speaking of a violent displeasure that Jesus had in this moment. You know, one of the other times that this Greek word is used in the New Testament is in that famous story from Jesus' life when a woman comes and breaks a very expensive bottle of perfume and anoints and washes Jesus' feet with it. It tells you that a nameless disciple was angry in that moment. It's this word. In that story, because that nameless disciple loved money, he was angry that the expression of generosity and love and worship was too much, he said. It's just too much. But in this story of Jesus raising Lazarus, because of Jesus' love for his father and his love for us, for humanity, he's angry here because the consequence of mankind's rebellion, that's what was too much. For him and his humanity, it was too much for him to bear. It broke his heart along with humanity. He stood shoulder to shoulder with us in that moment, feeling the sorrow that comes from suffering and sin. Why is he angry? I mean, who is he angry at? If Jesus had been angry at Lazarus or, or Martha or Mary or even at the crowd that had gathered to mourn, his anger would have been misguided. It would have been misdirected. It would have been aimed in the wrong place and towards the wrong people. His anger wasn't towards them, though, at all. His anger was at death itself. His anger was at the cause of death. It had human rebellion and sin in its crosshairs. His anger was at what it cost humanity when they rebelled against God. And soon you will find him crushed on Gethsemane's floors, overwhelmed by sorrow at what it will cost him too. My friends, Jesus here is angry. And if his anger was towards anyone who was present that day, his anger really would have been misguided. And there's a challenging point of application there, I think, for us. Because the question for us that we must answer is, where is your anger pointed at? In your suffering and your sorrow, in your grieving, where is your anger pointed? Is your anger misguided? Sure, we could ask, like we did of Jesus, are you angry at people that maybe you shouldn't be? When it's really the result of the fall of sin and brokenness that you suffer and that your heart is filled with sorrow today. But if we are honest, we'd admit that it's easier to blame a person and to create an us versus them frame of mind to live in than to, in humility, accept the things that we can neither control nor explain that bring us pain in life. Oh, it's not just are you misdirecting your anger towards people, but even think about this. I want to ask you, is your anger misdirected when you pinned the source of your suffering and sorrow on God himself? Are you blaming him for things that he is in no way responsible for? Is it time today in humility to look to him in repentance, asking for forgiveness for your anger with him because of the sorrow and the suffering that you've been faced with? Because you too have maybe stood at the grave of a loved one like they were in this moment and found that your tears ceased only because they felt as though they ran out and you felt as though Jesus failed to show up. Oh, remember the story is really a story about prayer because they called for their friend Jesus, whom they trusted to love them enough to come to them and rescue the one that he loved. And they were in that moment feeling as if Jesus had failed them 
Or do you stand beside them today feeling the same way? But will you trust him? Oh, he's sorrowful for our sorrow. He's weeping with us. Guys, I just, I was thinking about this this week, even in considering what's happening in the Middle East. He's sorrowful with us. He's weeping with us at the sorrow that's felt by us when the sting of death is experienced by us. And because he loves us, I believe he is also simultaneously angry, not with us, just as he wasn't angry with them, but he's furious at what sin has caused. He's angry. That's why he approaches in the story the grave with authority and anger rather than with trepidation and timidity. He steps forward demanding that the grave give up its trophy, that it give back humanity. How do you respond in the midst of your suffering? You are invited to cry out as they did, Jesus, the one that you love, is hurting today. And to expect that he will hurt with you. Oh, notice Jesus' delay. Notice his sorrow. Did you see his anger? But we shouldn't leave before we also look at Jesus' power. Because remember, this is a miracle sign, John says. And a sign exists to point to a reality outside of and beyond itself. So what does the sign point our attention to? Well, clearly it points our attention to Jesus' power over life and death. Because in this moment, death finally meets its foe. Humanity had never presented a single individual who had a fair fight with death in the grave. Jesus will prove to be more than a fair foe. He will prove himself to be greater than death and the grave. Humanity has long answered the grave's irrevocable call until Jesus made his demand with the power and authority that death in the grave could not ignore when he said, Lazarus, come out. I mean, did you notice that raising Lazarus was the final straw, though? Did you notice that the very last verse we read, verse 53, it's the very last straw for the Pharisees, where now Jesus' fate is sealed. They are now determined he's a dead man. This is it. It's gone too far. This is our line, and he's crossed it. And I'm confident that Jesus knew this, that he knew that he had crossed the point of no return, that this was it. This was him, in a sense, signing his own warrant. This is him signing, in a sense, his own death certificate, which means that for Jesus to raise Lazarus was ultimately for Jesus to take his place. Because for Lazarus to exit the grave would mean that Christ must enter it. It's a mini portrait of the gospel in this moment where it tells you this is the line, this is where they say, and now he's a dead man. The crowd had marveled, oh, look at his love for Lazarus in his tears. But with hindsight, we say, look at it also, his great love for Lazarus and his willingness to embrace his own death and grave in order to raise Lazarus out of his own. Oh, does God really care about my suffering, we wonder. As we look around at our sin-splintered, broken world, I was reminded just this week that God lost his son in an unjust act of violence too. Oh, he understands. How do we know that he really cares, though, about our suffering? Well, because he got involved in our suffering. He put himself into and under and through human suffering in order to one day rescue all of us from it. A.W. Tozer, he said it this way. He said, he takes no pleasure in human tears. He came and wept that he might stop forever the fountain of human tears. He came and bereaved his mother 
that he might heal all bereavement. He came and lost everything that he might heal the wounds that we have from losing things. And he wants us to take pleasure in him. Let us put away our doubts and trust him. You know, if you're suffering today, I have to tell you that there are times when I look at human brokenness and suffering in our world, and and I can look in moments and I can think and feel and maybe even say that I don't always feel that God is really off the hook for the world's suffering. Because these things still hurt deeply. They're hard. They're beyond just disappointing. It's beyond just disappointing that suffering still exists as a part of our life and existence. But it's in those moments that I have to remind myself that God put himself on the hook for the world's suffering. He didn't have to, but he did it anyway. He suffered to save me from my sin and to end all suffering once and for all. When Jesus will triumphantly pronounce, behold, I make all things new again. Know with certainty that he's neither too weak to do something nor too wicked to intervene. He sent his one and only son to redeem what was lost and restore it to its prior glory. A world that will be free of suffering and free of death and free of the sorrow that it brings. Although my choice to follow Jesus, it does not give me an answer for every individual experience of suffering that I face. It does answer clearly what the answer is not. The answer is never that God doesn't care. God cared so deeply about my misery and suffering that he willingly took it upon himself. And because of that, I believe he is a God that's worth trusting, a God worth loving, and a God worth living for. It was the late pastor R.C. Sproul who commented, he said this, he said, why do good or why do bad things happen to good people? He said that only happened once and he volunteered. Jesus, we thank you that in this story, we find God among us touched with humanity's sorrow, struck with it. We're so thankful that you did incarnate, that you took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. We're so thankful that you can understand us, that we have confidence that you care about us and that you will rescue us from suffering like this. Jesus, we look your direction and are in amazement that, God, you would condescend, that you would come here to endure so much, that you'd love us like that. And Jesus, we're amazed by your power. You have power over life and the grave that you ask us as you did them, after stating that you were the resurrection and the life, you asked, do you believe this? And Jesus, today I respond and say yes. Jesus, today we respond, we say yes. Jesus, we believe. We choose to trust you in life and even in the future at the hour of our death. Jesus, give comfort for those who are weary and hurting and overwhelmed. God, breathe life into hearts, I pray, as we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.